0: Hello and welcome back to BNSSG PEDSPOD. I'm Ruth Bowen. I'm a Bristol GP working for the BNSSG Training Hub, bringing child and young person education to primary care clinicians. Today we're going back to Bristol Children's Hospital where I'll be speaking to Deb Marriage
1: and Katie Pike
0: about asthma.
1: Hi, I'm Deb Marriage and I'm the consultant nurse for allergy and asthma at Bristol Children's Hospital. Hi, I'm
2: Katie Pike. I'm a paediatric respiratory consultant with an interest in asthma at Bristol Children's.
0: Fantastic. Thank you for joining us today. Deb, do you mind telling us a bit about the paediatric asthma outreach clinic pilot that you ran over last winter?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. It ran from September to March. We had some funding from the BNSSD Children, Families and Maternity Steering Group. And essentially we set up a mini hub in children's centres. The aim was that we would target deprived areas. So we moved around BNSSG. After three months, we dropped the areas where we weren't being sent patients. I had a practice nurse on a Tuesday and a different practice nurse on a Thursday. And the idea was that we learned from each other. So I don't do a lot of primary care work, so I don't really understand how primary care works. So I learned all of that from them. They were absolutely fantastic, so shout out to them. We'd get referrals from patients who either had poorly controlled asthma or who required some diagnostic testing. We'd do a full clinical review. So we'd look at what they were on, what their prescription uptake was, etc. Then we'd do some objective tests. So we did pheno, we did spirometry. And for about 25% of patients, we also did allergy skin prick testing as well to look for comorbidities um, or differential diagnoses. And we would put together a management plan. We would review their inhaler technique. We'd often change their devices, etc., do prescription. And hopefully they were good to go. And then we'd send a clinic letter out to the GP and to the family. And we would ideally say, this management strategy, but if that doesn't work, then you could try this. So hopefully there were two steps for the GP or practice nurse.
0: And it sounds like you learned an awful lot that would be very helpful for us in primary care.
1: So I think the main things were that a lot of people didn't have asthma plans. In line with the NRAD report, the review of asthma deaths, everyone should have a personal asthma action plan. And I think they are quite time consuming. So if you haven't got very long or you're sometimes doing an annual review by text questions and if they're well, you might not see them. So those people may not have a plan in place. So that was quite important. And also in inhaler technique. So lots of children will have a yellow aero chamber and quite a lot of 15-year-olds also still had a yellow aero chamber with a mask on it. Mm. Perhaps you look at a 14-year-old and they are a child, so you take child space, but you may not realise that you're prescribing something with a small mask on it. So if someone's over four, if they can suck on a straw then ideally they should be using a mouthpiece with a spacer and not a mask. So that was the first thing. The second thing would be the use of dry powder devices. Not many people at all were on dry powder devices. There is a BNSG green impact prescribing group. But again, it takes time, doesn't it, to people to, to use a different device. There was quite low use of Mart. Something that could be widely used, especially now that Simbacorp is licensed for PRN use alone now. So if you have that patient who you think, oh, I'll give them a salbutamol for a couple of weeks and see how they get on, you could now give them Simbacorp, which is safer, so then you're not putting them at risk of overuse. Just thinking about the simple stuff, devices, treatment options, etc.
0: Brilliant. Well, if it's all right, we'll now go through a few cases, and that should bring out some of the key learning from your pilot, as well as practice here at the hospital, and guidelines. So, for the first case, eight-year-old Ava presents with her mum. She's had no symptoms until 18 months ago, when she had a cough and a cold, which lasted several weeks. Salbutamol seemed to help, but mum stopped it after two months as her symptoms resolved. She's now back, as symptoms have recurred with intermittent cough and choriza, worse in the afternoons and at night. She's got eczema and a moderate atopic family history, and she's not had any objective investigations. So Deb, how would you approach this case? Is there anything else that you'd want to know to help with the diagnosis?
1: I'm in the advantageous position of having objective tests at my fingertips. This is a typical history, isn't it, of an evolving asthma patient in theory. And you do also often see patients that have started clenal and it gets better and they stop that. Essentially, if you're looking at they are atopic, so they've got an increased likelihood of asthma. I would do spirometry personally and I would perform reversibility, and hopefully that would confirm a diagnosis. I would also do phenol because I have it available. Although phenol can sometimes catch you out, so you can have an elevated phenol without having ongoing asthma. This is a very bond or patient, so I'd be pretty sure that they would have a slightly elevated phenol. But if they had a lot of allergic rhinitis, then you could have a falsely positive phenol. You could do a peak flow diary at home if you don't have access to spirometry, looking for diurnal variability. I may do some allergy testing to look for A2P, but I probably wouldn't in a simple situation.
0: Objective testing seems to be one of those topics that varies a lot depending on the guidelines you look at. So NICE seems very pro so as you've talked about, the spirometry, the phenos, skin prick tests, IgE, bloody eosinophils, and that peak flow variability that we use a lot in primary care. But BTS, sign and our local guidelines seem to be more down the route of clinical diagnosis. And having objective tests to support that they're not the centre of the diagnosis Mm. and that they're actually much more important in those intermediate probability diagnostic cases, when should we be using them?
1: I think that's quite hard to answer because I know the situation that you're in in primary care. So I know that lots of surgeries don't have access to spirometry at all. And if we were looking at adults, we could send them to the MBT diagnostic hub, but we don't have that for children. So phenotesting, if you have access to that, then great. It's worth doing. There's a the caveat of needing to approach it with caution, I think. So I think your other option would be to give a trial of treatment. So probably clenol 100 part twice a day through an appropriate spacer for eight weeks and then stop and ask them to come back to you before they restart it. So if they become unwell in the next four weeks or so, They're bound to have some left, so don't just do it automatically. They need to be seen, it needs to be documented. And also, I would use a 100 puff because that's more environmentally friendly. In the old days, we might have used Clenol 50 two-puffs twice a day. We don't need to do that. We know that it's just as useful and effective.
0: That's a really good tip. Thank you. What do you think of peak flows and what sort of age, child, do you think would be appropriate for us to be starting to try peak flow
1: variability diaries with? It's definitely a value in a peak flow diary. We don't use them a lot in the hospital, but then we have the luxury of objective testing. I think probably around six or seven, and that's the same age that we would start to do objective testing. You might have a funny diary for the first week or so, but by the end of it, they should be pretty good. Some won't be able to do it, but you don't know to try.
0: Brilliant, thank you. I think in some GP surgeries, it can be harder to get spirometry for young children, mm. but actually peak flows, we all have access to, and most surgeries have access to pheno. So we do at least have a couple that we pretty much all have our fingertips that we can be using for those objective tests. Yeah, absolutely. Coming back to Ava, what differentials might you consider in this case? What do you think might be going on?
1: Well, all children will have four or five colds a year. So you would just want to check that they weren't just colds with a little bit of a cough afterwards. that could last for a week or so in normal people who don't have respiratory problems. You might look at allergic rhinitis, but I think there's no suggestion that that's going on here. But that's a common one. of people presenting with asthma in young children will actually not have asthma, but will have allergic rhinitis and post-nasal drip. Mm So this kind of persistent nighttime cough, which is one of the things we ask about, isn't it? And of course, significant rhinitis will give you that.
0: Gosh, 30%, that's quite high. That's quite high,
1: yeah, definitely. So you may have done your eight-week trial of Clenol and found that there's no difference. In which case, you might think about doing a trial of Avamys nasal spray. Mm -hmm. It's really well-tolerated in children because it's such a fine mist. And if they respond dramatically to that, then that could give you a diagnosis without doing any allergy testing. Other common differential diagnoses, disordered breathing, sometimes tics and Tourette-type pictures we see. Sometimes when you see the patient and you hear the cough, you think, well, that's definitely not asthma.
0: So you'd go into your objective test then with her, and then dependent on the results, what would be your options?
1: I would go for a low-dose inhaled steroid. I'd put her on clenil 100. That's my bog-standard approach. If that doesn't work, and I'm very convinced it's asthma, so she's reversible, then I would go to flixotide as the next step. Flixotide seems to be much more effective than clenil in the more difficult patients. So you can give the same dose of inhaled steroid, and their control can be much better. Obviously, it's a bit more expensive, so you wouldn't start that off as first line. But it's definitely worth thinking about before you jump up to serotide. And also we know that bronchodilators are pro-inflammatory, so the less we give, the more we steer away from the long-acting bronchodilators, possibly the better for the patient.
0: Brilliant, thanks very much. So if we move on to our second case, six-year-old Tobias presents with his father with wheeze approximately three times a year when he has coughs or colds. There are no interval symptoms. Katie, how would you manage Tobias?
2: Deb's mentioned a number of the things that we do and we tend to look at asthma in quite a systematic way. The first thing here, again, what are these symptoms? So we've got a reported wheeze. Now many people use the word wheeze to refer to different respiratory sounds. Any type of noisy breathing is quite often reported as wheeze. to clarify exactly what Tobias and his father are referencing. And then the next thing to think about is how frequent this is. And as Deb has said, many children will have upwards of eight infections over the winter. If he's only wheezing three times a year it sounds like not every single cold is tipping him over the edge so that's quite reassuring really in terms of what intensity of treatment he might need. I'd probably probe a little bit around are we absolutely sure this is always with coughs and colds again because we've said they're so frequent they could just co-locate think about the type of things that might prompt wheezing at other times I mean sometimes I think we're pushed for time and we might even use medical jargon to a patient and say well do you have interval symptoms and they look at you and think what on earth are you talking about so specifically saying you know when your child is running around and thinking about the age of the child if they're two or 3 their running is not going to be the same as it is for a child that's close to school age think about when they're feeding or when they're excited something like that does that impact upon their breathing at this stage you could also for a six-year-old not in the community it's not that easy but we've got the luxury that we could consider some objective testing at this stage that potentially for a six-year-old could be really useful with mild symptoms because this could very easily not be asthma at all in which case Why are they here today on this day? Did this happen last week? Or is this three times that happened almost a year ago? Does it need treating? If it does, and it's just with viruses, coughs and colds, it would be reasonable to treat that symptomatically, actually, with just salbutamol. And I think we've gotten a little bit cautious about doing that because our guidelines now are saying there's the worry about salbutamol being pro-inflammatory, And you shouldn't really be giving it without any steroid. And I think this is where we're let down a little bit by the inhalers that are available to us. So if there was an easy combined steroid and even a short-acting bronchodilator, then actually for these children, this might be useful. In this case, there isn't. We don't have that. So if you see them in the middle of a wheezing process with a cold, it's not unreasonable to give them some symptomatic relief with salbutamol at that point. The thing is, you've then given somebody an inhaler which they could use at any point over the next year. So again, follow-up is really important because you want to know how many times they're using it.
0: Thank you. So objective testing, if you can, if you can't, would be reasonable to start subutamol and make sure that we follow up. His symptoms then progress to a persistent wheeze, which is, as you say, triggered by some of these typical asthma triggers, such as changes in the weather, exposure to pets and exercise. Returns with his father as he's now using the subutamol almost every day. What would you do at this point?
2: Well, it's good your wheeze come back, because that was my worry, that the salbutamol is going to be used quite a lot. So I think we need to have a little think about, is this viral-induced wheeze now? or He's getting a little bit older. Has this evolved into an asthma picture? There isn't, and this is the spiel that I will often give patients, there is not an asthma test. There's no such thing as a crystal ball. Many children wheeze when they're very young, and the ones that have asthma is very easy when they've carried on wheezing beyond six, seven, eight years of age to say, oh, look at this. But when they're at this earlier age, it's a little bit more difficult. So, the things which can be useful are to look at personal history of ATP, so eczema, egg allergy, these things can be predictive, and family history. And we'd often do a full blood count at this stage and see what the blood eosinophils are, and if they're high, that can also be a predictor. So, effectively, what we're doing is making a decision about whether this is tipped over from viral induced wheeze. Is this now asthma? Have we got all of those risk factors? Are there the interval symptoms that we talked about before with exercise and triggers other than viruses? I think if that's the case, then they probably need to think about some form of preventer. There are differences in guidelines. BTS would state to start at a very low dose of inhaled steroids. Nice guidelines in younger children, they're talking about less than five, but, you know, six is so borderline for that. It's probably phenotypically the same thing. would suggest a slightly different strategy, whereas if you're going to do a trial, you want to know if that trial's worked. And sometimes I might give an or hundred two plus twice a day so that if it's not worked on that, I know it's not a problem that the dose is too low, basically. But again, what are you giving people? You have to give them the knowledge to know when to come back and to complete that trial, essentially.
0: Okay. So what would you give him to take home?
2: I would definitely give him a Clenor and I would probably mm-hmm. give him 100 at two plus twice a day. But it's, okay. the taking home is one thing, the coming back is another. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they would have to come back after eight weeks and you would need to set the groundwork for that review meeting by telling people what you want them to be looking out for in that time. And you have to think about the frequency of symptoms. If only having symptoms three times a year, you're not going to see a benefit over eight weeks. Thanks.
0: So he comes back in eight weeks, as you've asked him to with his father, and his symptoms have improved with Clenil, but he's still using salbutamol three to four times a week. Do you mind talking us through the BTS and sign stepwise management for 5 to 12 year olds? What would be the progression that you would step the treatment
2: up? The progression is exactly you say it is stepwise you have additional therapies that you can add on so once you have been at appropriate dose of steroids which you might have stepped down to very low dose after your trial if you think it's controlling, if not you can continue at that low dose. You can add in a leukotriene receptor antagonist such as montelukast then subsequently you can add in a laber so that's a long-acting beta agonist and i think most people would go for the labber first but for younger children there's a push towards montelukast the thing about the steps however is that you don't just progress through blindly probably what i would do if he came back and he wasn't fully better is assess the many things that deb has mentioned about is the diagnosis correct is the inhaler technique correct etc is he actually taking the inhaler
0: And how do these guidelines differ then for children with persistent wheeze following the pattern of asthma who are under five years old?
2: It depends which guideline you're following but under the BTS essentially there isn't that option of the long-acting beta agonists. It is unusual in the community to see a child prescribed serotide under five and this case is, is six so he could for that reason Montelucas comes earlier in the algorithm.
0: Brilliant thank you. So moving on to our next case, 8-year-old Fatima is on Ceratide 125, 4 puffs twice a day, montelukast, and Salbutamol. She's been issued 11 serotide MDI inhalers with a spacer and mask and 8 Salbutamol MDI inhalers in the last year. She's had multiple primary care appointments resulting in increasing steroid doses but still reports being breathless during exertion.
1: Deb, if we come back to you, how would you manage this case? Well, I think any child taking four puffs of serotide 125 and still reporting symptoms either doesn't have asthma, which is the key, I think, or is possibly over-reporting. What we're seeing here is really good adherence. So she's picking up a serotide every month and also picking up lots of Salbutamol as well. So sometimes what I would do would be to ensure that the Salbutamol is on variable repeat so that actually she has to ask for it rather than it just being prescribed automatically And you would question if she was really needing that much salbutamol. So I would want to know what the symptoms are. And sometimes when you talk to a parent in this situation, the symptoms they describe could be unusual. So for example, the mother may say, she's really tired, I give her a blue inhaler and it helps. Tiredness is not really a sign of asthma on its own. I would probably also contact the school. Sometimes there are advantages to having a diagnosis of severe asthma, so there are financial advantages. Sometimes people are just very worried about their children. It's not that they are making it up, it's just that they see a problem in front of them and they assume that it is asthma and that that's how they have to manage it. So it's very multifactorial, really. But I would definitely want to do objective testing on this child. And I'm sure I would find it would be completely normal. What I might want to do is to instantly stop the serotide, but you're not going to be able to do that in this situation. This is going to take time, so I think I would probably go for two puffs of serotide with a three or four month review. Mm -hmm. I'd be fairly sure that a child like this would come back for their reviews because I think they're quite medically engaged. And then I would chop it again. Then I would go down to Clenol. And hopefully I could get her down to Clenol 50, maybe one puff twice a day and see how we get on and keep doing objective testing.
0: And is that the sort of frequency with which, when you decide to step down management plans, you would step them down over?
1: It might be a little bit longer, depending on how easy it is to get them into your clinic, but I would probably go for about four months. And with this child, I know, by looking at this, that this child doesn't have severe asthma because of the kind of history that we're getting and the reporting, etc. So I'm not going to drag it out too long. I just want the parent to be engaged and to feel that we're listening to them and that we're doing it safely. I'd do it after eight weeks if I could, but I think that I might be pushing it.
0: Okay. And the personal asthma action plan that you mentioned... What is that? Is that something that every patient with
1: asthma should have? So every child with asthma should have a personal asthma action plan. And this is all outlined in the NRAD report. It is associated with reduction in mortality and morbidity. People have something that they can look at. They know what they need to do, when they need to do it. And Katie and I have just spent quite a long time designing a very beautiful personal asthma action plan which is now being used within the hospital. So we have a children's one, a teenage one, which has less little pictures on. We also have a MART plan as well. So we have those three. It just outlines the child's preventive medication, Mm -hmm. what it is, what the dose is and how often they should be taking it, whether they have a spacer, whether it's a mask or a mouthpiece they're using. And it talks about how much salbutamol to use with symptoms. And we're trying to steer away from giving 10 puffs every four hours or escalating to 10 puffs quickly. So we're now saying give two puffs, wait five to 10 minutes. If you're not better, take two more. Wait five or 10 minutes. If you're not better, give another two. And then potentially, if that doesn't work, take some more and seek medical help. So we're getting away from the 10 puffs every four hours because we know that that makes it worse sometimes.
0: Okay, thank you. And I will pop a link in underneath this podcast with the personal action and plan from asthma and lung.org.uk. You could have
1: ours as well, if you like. i was going to offer
0: that. If you're <laughs> happy for us, but as you on there, I'll pop that into as well for everyone to see. Great. Talking about the spaces and masks,
1: do you mind talking us through that? What sort of age are spaces and masks appropriate and what should we be using? So I would always recommend a mouthpiece in anyone who can use it potentially you're looking at a four-year-old and we did make up a nice little rhyme but I can't remember the whole thing it was if you're over four you can suck on a straw ditch the mask I can't remember the whole thing but essentially <laughs> that's that the message lovely. if you're over four ditch the mask there's a common perception that people need masks quite a long way into childhood and that's definitely not true get rid of them as soon as you can in terms of which spacer I'd recommend, I think polymatics were held to be the gold standard. But actually, if you're on your own with a wriggling child, the mask falls off, it falls apart. You know, whatever is easy for that person to use is the one you should be using. By the time you get to about eight or nine, certainly ten, I'd be looking, hopefully, to dry powder device for preventers and relievers. Mm-hmm. It's a real shame we can't do Mark from age six, but hopefully that will come in time.
0: Great. Thanks very much. So moving on to our next case, Katie, 15-year-old Fraser attends your clinic with an asthma flare with his gran, who he lives with due to family breakdown. He reports using salbutamol several times a day for the last week. Fraser was under the paediatric respiratory team, but attendance dropped off during the pandemic. Over the last 18 months, he's been seen four times in the emergency department. He's been prescribed simbicort and salbutamol. His gran has COPD and confides that she's concerned about his asthma. The family are known to social services because of drug use. What concerns might you have with this case?
2: Okay, so this poor boy is the type of patient that I would love to see in my clinic because the chances are he isn't on a proper treatment regime. So if he were to have access to that he could improve. We could improve his quality of life and we could reduce his risk. And I think this question is all about risk. So this is a high risk patient and the importance is recognising him. And in this scenario, of course, it's a gift because he's turned up and he's turned up at a critical teaching moment because he's actually unwell. So he's going to want to feel better. So anything you say at the moment will probably land really well. There's some red flags littered through the scenario for people to pick up. One is the morbidity throughout the family. So the gran has COPD. She's most likely prescribed some form of medication. Now, what happens when this boy runs out? Does he just grab grand's, and then nobody knows how much he's needing or using because he might be using somebody else's inhaler. It might not even be the right inhaler for his condition. And then all the lovely education that somebody like Deb has done throughout his paediatric years is probably quite vulnerable at the moment because. That may have been done with one or other or both parents, but now the family's broken down and he's with his grand. Does she know exactly how severe his asthma is and how to manage it? There's other pressures on this family. There might be financial pressures. There's the issue of the drug use, which can make the whole setup quite chaotic sometimes. And when most of the treatments that we suggest are very routine and regimented, that might not fit particularly well with his lifestyle. He's quite vulnerable, particularly given his age, because he's on that cusp between paediatric care and adult care. And he's a patient that is having problems. You know, he's going to ED with attacks, but ED is very rapid turnover. Is he being recognised there as somebody that needs to have a follow-up? So I think his scenario is an example of every element in the chain, every contact being maximised for his benefit to get him back to a place of safety, essentially.
0: What else would you want to know in
2: this case? Many of those background things that I've suggested, it's always worth knowing is a child or young person like this on any child protection plan who is in the background for him looking out for his needs? Does he have a social worker? And not all families will be upfront about that. So often you get a divide between, say, health and social care. So health may not be aware that there's a social worker that can help support a family and get somebody to an appointment where they need to be. And equally, on a number of occasions, I've seen social care not necessarily aware of the severity of a person's asthma. And that is particularly important in terms of follow-up. So there can always be sad to hear, but you hear that phrase of, oh, "it's well, it's only asthma. And the only in front of asthma is really dangerous. A child that had another chronic condition, now that might be something like diabetes, or if they had ongoing treatment for a malignancy, there is absolutely no way that a social care team would allow that child to miss their follow-up. But for asthma, we do see that time and again. And I think our role as healthcare workers is to just be very clear about the severity of the asthma and the potential for a life-threatening attack. So on our clinic letters now, instead of writing asthma, if a child has had a life-threatening attack, I will write, life-threatening asthma. I used to hold back from doing that because I worried about frightening children and their parents but they've already been frightened, they've already been through that one attack and they deserve not to go for another one.
0: Thank
2: you.
0: So what would be your priorities with crisis management?
2: He's essentially having an asthma attack so we need to know is this something that can be controlled in, in primary care or does he need to go into hospital but those acute things Adjust the sign of what's going on underneath. And so the other priority is making sure that he has access to and understands a safe treatment regime for him. And he might be somebody that would be quite suitable for a mark because it's so much easier to take treatment when you're feeling unwell. Actually remembering to do it at other times is more difficult. So that could be an option for him. Another option we use quite a lot with our older children would be something like Relvar, which is quite tolerant to not being taken. Just a once daily, one suck type medication It's a lot easier than having to take a spacer around with you And take multiple doses And if you manage to take it on every other day You probably will have some residual cover from that
0: What's in Relvar?
2: Fluticasone furorate Which is like fluticasone in any other way Except for it's slightly less adrenal suppressive So it's a really nice steroid But it's also able to be long acting And you only need it once a day and then the long-acting bronchodilator is something called velanterol, which again has a very long duration of action.
0: Can you talk us through the MART regime that you mentioned? What is a MART regime?
2: MART stands for Maintenance and Reliever Treatment. It's a bit unfortunate because for most of our careers, we've been talking about Preventer and Reliever. MART is where we're at. It's to use a combination inhaler. Often we talk about SMART because of what's licensed in the UK, and that's SimbaCort, so that adds the S on and that is a combination of inhaled steroid and a lather. The maintenance is usually one or two sucks of a 100 or 206 inhaler twice daily, and then on top of that you have some reliever sucks that are taken as needed. The guidance around that is that you can take up to 12 sucks total in a day, so if you're taking two twice a day you've got eight that are yours to take as and when you need them throughout the day. In terms of ceilings on that, what we would say is if you have six at any one point, and at any one point in practical terms is over one to two hours, or if you're needing the 12 for two or three days at a time, that is not normal. So at that point, you need review.
0: And um, the labber in that is quick acting enough, is it, to be acting as a
2: reliever? It's for metral. So the difference between the Simbacor and, say, Ceratide is that it's quick acting, so they get relief of their symptoms as they take it.
0: So what sort of patient should we be thinking about? SMART?
2: Unfortunately, at the moment, it can only be patients that are 12 years or over. In my experience, i found it has worked really nicely for patients who have mild to moderate asthma. In terms of patient characteristics, we've found it suits patients that would otherwise be taking a lot of salbutamol. It's quite useful for people that do a fair amount of exercise and have exercise-induced symptoms because they can take it before or even during exercise. And also, it's a portable inhaler, so it's just practically useful for that. I think in the future, it's going to be the treatment of choice for the majority of patients, actually.
0: Wow, Okay. thank you. So you've got some really good options then for Fraser in terms of next steps. So SMART is obviously a really good option for him. What else might you be considering?
2: This boy has been into ED four times over the last few months and could genuinely have really severe asthma. So he might be somebody that needs a hospital clinic for consideration of whether he has actually severe asthma and if he needs the biologic treatment, for example.
0: Do you mind talking us through the point at which we would be referring in to secondary care for
2: the biologics? Eligibility for biologics is based on severity of symptoms requiring prednisolone. So there's slightly different cut-offs for each biologic, but in the region of three or four courses of steroids in a year, particularly in those older patients where there's less virally triggered asthma attacks throughout the year, they're having that number of attacks, they should be referred into secondary care.
1: So what are your key take-home messages? My first one is step back before you step up. So if somebody is prescribed a treatment and it doesn't seem to be working, I'd go through their prescription history. I'd check their inhaler technique. Because if they're not really taking it, you shouldn't be giving them more. For another tip, I would say always think about risk
2: rather than just control. We want to know who's going to have an attack next. Direct
1: attention that maybe we can stop that being an inevitability. Spaces and masks is another one. So mm-hmm. get rid of the mask and personal asthma plans. Make sure everyone's got one of those. My key
0: take-home messages are really think about the different differentials. So I was a bit shocked by that thirty percent of people actually have allergic rhinitis. I didn't realise it was anything like as high as that. Trying the clenil at a higher dose when you're doing a trial of treatment to see if they respond to it. That's a really good and logical tip. Coming back to what you just said there, Deb, with no mask over four, and the dry powder devices, thinking about them from about 10 or 11 upwards, not stepping up the asthma regime before we've gone through the adherence, the inhaler technique, thinking about the differentials, that seems like that's a really common theme. And then thinking about safeguarding as well around severe, potentially life-threatening asthma. So lots of really key take-home messages for me there. Are there any key resources that either of you would like to highlight to primary care clinicians?
1: I think that the Allergy UK resources on allergens are really worth looking at. So if someone has allergic rhinitis, there are really good leaflets, easily accessible on their website on how to smite allergy. Asthma UK obviously are valuable. Asthma plus Lung UK is really good for inhaler technique videos.
2: Direct people to that landing page and then they can go to whichever inhaler they have. And it's got nasal sprays as well.
0: Brilliant, thank you. I'll add all of those underneath this podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. The contents of these podcasts are for educational purposes aimed at primary care healthcare professionals only. They do not substitute professional medical advice or consultations with healthcare professionals. Information presented is the opinion of the healthcare professional interviewed based on their interpretation of best practice and guidelines at the time of the interview. It is the listener's responsibility to compare information given with up-to-date national and local guidelines. The BNSSG Training Hub, Ruth Bowen and interviewees are not liable for any clinical decisions made as a result of this podcast.